Welcome to the Paradigm Shift on 4ZZZ 102.1, where we challenge the assumptions of our current society to resist oppression and investigate alternative ways of living for a world based on justice, solidarity, and sustainability. Welcome to the Paradigm Shift on 4ZZZ and happy birthday 4ZZZ. Uh, 48 years ago on this day, at this time, um, we began broadcasting for the first time and it's been uninterrupted since then, despite um, the efforts of some to shut it down over the years. Uh, We've managed to keep going with mostly volunteer labor and support from listeners like yourselves. Thanks very much to everybody who's volunteered their time over the years, which has been an incredible effort. And thanks very much to everybody who's listening to it, who's subscribed to help keep it on air. And the fruits of our labor is this amazing radio station that we all get to enjoy every day. Um, My name's Andy. This show is The Paradigm Shift. And we're broadcasting on Jagger and Turable Country, and I'm very uh, glad to be here. And it is a birthday today, but on the Paradigm Shift, we are going to be doing somewhat of a funeral show. Um, We're going to be paying tribute to an Australian legend who passed away last week, Uncle Kevin Buzzacott, Arabana man, peace activist, Sovereignty activist, anti-nuclear activist, and troublemaker, um, Aussie larrikin, mad footy fan, and king of the ferals, as he has been called at different times, um, the people that he gathered around him. He is somebody who's had an extraordinary influence on activism in this country in the last 20 to 30 years, um, but... I think a lot of the mainstream media just don't know. There hasn't been much coverage of his death. And so on the Paradigm Shift today, I've done my best to um, put together a tribute to Uncle Kev that does justice to everything that he did in his extraordinary life. Um, He was a father and a grandfather as well. But we're going to talk more about his public life as an activist um, and an elder for activism movements in Australia. And so we're going to hear from Lydia Thorpe, uh, her uncle Robbie Thorpe, his longtime activist, Bilbo Taylor, who did a lot of anti-nuke stuff with Uncle Kev, Izzy Brown, who did a lot of um, solidarity things with Uncle Kev, trips to West Papua, as well as a lot of um, partying and hanging out with him. And uh, Len Linden, his lawyer, who represents worked with him in court cases and was impressed by Uncle Kev's uh, ability to turn the courtroom into a theatre. And so there's plenty coming up. 
And so I'm going to let these people mostly tell the story of Uncle Kev and why his uh, life was important and should be remembered. So let's start with a speech that Lydia Thorpe gave in Parliament last week. It is one of the few public tributes that we've seen um, in any kind of public sphere. I rise to pay tribute to a man who has a lifelong legacy of caring for country and fighting against mines that make money killing our mother. I speak of Arabana elder Uncle Kevin Buzzacott. Uncle Kev, you have given so much to our movement, have taught so many about our sovereignty in this country, peace, resistance, resilience, from the frontiers of colonialism and capitalism. All love, respect and power to you. Uncle Kev has been back home on Arabana land over the past few months this year, responding to the old people calling to protect country, fire country, sacred lake air on Arabana country that's being destroyed by BHP's Olympic Dam mining operations. I'm sitting on the old place, he said a month ago. It's the most sacredest place on the earth. We're here to protect that old place and stop the sacrifice from the mining companies and developers who want to develop it. We're born with the obligation and responsibility to look after the old place, not to destroy it. We're only borrowing the place from the kids, from the future. Longtime friend Uncle Winiata writes, what a warrior, cheeky activist, great teacher, humorous, showman, T. Rangatira, mentor and kind man. He's received many awards for his resistance and advocacy, but he is affectionately known as the king of the ferals. Always concerned about the people that never fitted in. He loved and cared for them on many levels. I write this memoir to a gentle spirit whose ego is never a motivation. Likewise, the impact cheeky Uncle Kev has had on me is profound. I remember when he rocked up at BHP with an invoice an invoice for a trillion dollars for stealing his water and his land. I remember his support at the Japarung Protection Embassy of my people standing for sacred birthing trees. He said at one point, we need to make more of a noise, Lydia. Let's move the tents and cars onto the highway. I said, oh, I don't know, Unc. It sounds a little bit dangerous, but he's a fighter. And he's been fighting for this country and our water and our land. And now we can all learn from him forever. I know the country will win this argument, he says. It might take a while, but I know it's gonna win. These hills and mountains and the lake, they've been here since before these bastards ever came along and reminding us he is a part of country. We're going to still be here when they're dead and gone. Uncle said very recently, 
I haven't been around for 77 years for nothing. I've had an incredible journey, the greatest ever, and you all helped me make it that. I can't say enough. Keep that old fire burning in the belly and don't stop until we've won. We promise to do that. We'll keep the fire burning and see you in the dream time. It's activists like this and elders like this that you won't see getting any Australia Day, a medal or any kind of acknowledgement from the colonial state that we're in today. They're the activists that get brushed aside and made out to be troublemakers and the bad people. They're usually the people that your police force uh, run around trying to find to quickly lock up and get out the way. So Uncle Kev, thank you for your resilience, your activism, your leadership and for never giving up or giving in to our sovereignty in this country. And Uncle Kev, you're going to be with us forever. Thank you. That is Lydia Thorpe giving a speech in the Senate um, last week. Let's hear from Lydia's uncle, Robbie Thorpe. Now, I spoke to him um, about the significance of Uncle Kevin Buzzacott on Aboriginal activism in this country. My name's Robbie Thorpe, part of the Kulin Nation and the Gunai Kurnai Nation, the Eagle and the Pelican. And today we're doing a tribute to the life of Kevin Buzzacott. Um, you did a lot of stuff over the years with Uncle Kev, but can we start at the beginning of how you first met him? Um, I think it was that Federation of Land Councils met him. I think it's the first time I met with Uncle Kev. Um, we sort of gravitated together because I could see what, where he was coming from. It was similar to where I was coming from and uh, wasn't being heard. But then we, you know, we, further on we um, was involved with uh, cases against the, uh, the Commonwealth and the, and the Crown and, and the mining companies, also uh, the Tent Embassy. Yeah, Uncle Kev was a big influence on the Tent Embassy uh, for a long time. What significance do you think he had in forming that place as a, a centre for Aboriginal activism? Well, the fire is the obvious answer to that. He, um, he did that ceremony around the, the sacred fire law, he, he told us, and um, he'd done a proper ceremony. He, he carried ashes from Central Australia, everything. And he, it's sort of like he put, not a symbol, he actually put our law into the ground there. It's a law that relates to all the Aboriginal people across this continent. He sort of made that real for everyone. That's why it's still burning and that's why it's, it's like this, it's taken over as the centrepiece of that, that place now. I think it gave it life and um, it, it gave it a boost and um, symbolised uh, the power of our law. Uh, Uncle Kev removed the emu and kangaroo off the, off the old parliament walls and said that these things belong to our people, these, these are our totem law, and it's just you know, a higher law than, than the white fellow law. I've seen, I seen it in motion, I've seen what he did and how he was able to fend off the police commissioner, the fire commissioner, anyone. There's something special about Uncle Kev and um, certainly showed me a lot and gave me a lot of, um, a lot of faith and belief in my own people's law.
So he'd done that for a lot of people, great elder. And um, he, he was a teacher. And, you know, he was just a beautiful natured man too. Cheeky and was funny. Always telling jokes. Taught us so much. Uh, yeah, Uncle Kevy was an activist and he did a lot of these very public things, but also he was very much a culture person and like a, a lawman. How do you think these two things related or differed? Well, they fit hand in glove, actually. You know, aren't we standing up trying to... Activists, black activists in this country are trying to stand up for our sovereign rights in this country, as I understand it, and for justice and, and protection of our country. And so it fits hand in glove, the culture, the law... And, uh, and the activism, they're one of the same as far as I'm concerned. And, you know, what are you doing if you're not doing those things? Why would you call yourself an, an Aboriginal person if you weren't fighting for that survival of those things and the, the acknowledgement and recognition of that? You know, that so that's what made it very real. And uh, I could um, tell the stories. Uh, you know, very clever in the courts. Very clever man, like, like a lot of it, most of our people are. You know, and you know, he understands the power of, of country and, and and the spirit in this place. And he brought that to, to the embassy in a big way. And um, I was witnesses to some amazing things with Uncle Kev. Things that he did with fire and, and smoke and wasn't any mirrors there. <laughs> but uh, it's incredible what he, uh, what he did. And um, so, so brave, stood up to everybody and the police. I remember getting arrested with him in Canberra there over that emu and kangaroo business. And he, he wanted to take on the law, which I said, oh, I think I'll just, uh, you know, I'll just ignore it. But he, he took it on, which, um, which was a really hard way to roll on it, you know what I mean? He had to front it up every week or once you're subject to their law, it's really difficult. They can make a real problem for you like reporting and, and stressing you out. That's what they do to our people. And Uncle Kev was a mighty warrior. Had the strength. You know, I always knew it was... I always felt safe where he was. It was like a, um, a higher authority there with us. Some sort of spiritual thing that protected us all. And that's why people gravitated around him, because he, he represented that. Yeah, do you think that was because of his connection to culture and country that he could have that kind of fearlessness when standing up to the law of the government? Yeah, I think so, very much. You know, just imagine yourself if you had that uh, knowing and understanding of the power of your old law and how to use that law. And um, it's, it's very powerful. We all need to get back to that. And he was taking us on a journey there too. Well, we still are. We've got to just keep that fire burning at the embassy. That's what, it, that, that's what represents Uncle Kev to me, that fire at the embassy. And while that's still alive, his he's memory, and, memory and his struggle and his, and his, and his fight's still alive. It sort of symbolises our sovereignty struggle, along with the embassy. And if it wasn't for the embassy being there, you know, it wouldn't have been able to do that either. So that's another part of that sovereign struggle, and Uncle, Uncle Kev fitted perfectly well inside that system. He was in his glee there, right in the middle of the parliamentary triangle. So 
and saw that, you know, people knew that we were there with our law. He was also, I've seen him described a couple of times this week as the king of the ferals and he had this kind of tribe of activists and punks and hippies who who he had kind of brought together to work on things. Um, as somebody who was Aboriginal in that space, what did you think about this group of people that he brought with him? Uh, he was the master. He was a master performer. He was an artist and all that. And, and plus, I really on what they call the feral support you know, is not as people is it's got a lot to do with our my struggle and how, how I operate. You know, it's essential, and Uncle Kevin understands that too, and was able to uh, utilise it, you know, fully. And they end up yeah, falling in love. He had something to offer too. He gave a lot back to people. He taught them heaps of stuff. They loved travelling with him. It was a joy to be with. It was a great adventure. They were so lucky to be with Uncle Kevin. They knew it. Well, Uncle Kev, he's passed on last week. Uh, what legacy do you think he leaves for the Aboriginal movement in this country? Uh, well, what we've all been saying all along is this: we never ceded our sovereignty over this land. You've got to stop destroying it. These multinational mining companies are um, tearing the place apart with the support of these governments here. And he brought that home, that message home. He opened himself up to people and made them really aware, made them really understand. He took the time out and, and taught people properly. He spent months with people and um, you know, that, that legacy is there amongst those people. And a lot of them were ferals, as they say. But um, you know, a lot of those people were my best friends too. You know, Uncle Kev um, also helped make um, genocide a part of the vocabulary of this country as well in terms of the legal system which has failed us there, big time. Um, he talks about eco-side and the dangers of mining companies and what they're doing to these sites, what that represents. Uh, he, he taught us all, he left, his, he left his mark on us all and on the land itself, you know, via that fire and so many other things that he did around his own country, where he was from, Arabana, and was much loved. Had great support all around. He was. It's, it's pretty tough to be activist from out in the middle of the desert. You know, you you need to have this support. I'm not talking about the support of corporate bodies and and welfare services. I'm talking about the, the independent support you need to have to talk about things the way that Aunt did. He was fiercely independent and and done things his way. And uh, no, that's the great lesson Aunt taught us. And anyone, you know, just. Put, You've got to believe in yourself, believe in your law, and you can just about, just about do anything. We've just heard from Robbie Thorpe, um, Gunnakurnai Aboriginal man from down in Victoria, about Uncle Kev's influence on him. Uncle Kevin Buzzcott did die um, last week, and um, doing a tribute to an incredible life. He was 77 years old and um, achieved a lot in his life, certainly influenced a lot of people. We're now going to chat to Bilbo Taylor, who worked with Uncle Kev a lot over the years on anti-nuclear campaigns and all kinds of dramatic actions. Let's have a listen to Bilbo. G'day, my name's Bilbo Taylor. I'm a sovereignty campaigner, an anti-nuclear campaigner and a long-term environmental campaigner. 
And today we're talking about Uncle Kevin Buzzacott, who has just passed away. You spent a lot of time with Uncle Kev, I understand, but let's start at the beginning and can you tell us how you first met and got to know him? Um, I was campaigning for a number of years blockading in East Gippsland for, uh, in Goongra for an organisation called Gecko, blockading old growth forest logging. And I left that campaign and I was in Western Victoria with only Betty King and the uh, Gunchamara people down there blockading and reclaiming land. And then I heard about this man, uh, Kevin Buzzacott, asking for people to come out to Lake Air and uh, campaign and had no idea what it was about. I hitched to Adelaide went to a public meeting, met him out the front in the car, jumped in the car, next thing I know I was up at Lake Air and I never left. Yeah, yeah. So the Lake Air gathering, um, in part it was about water being drained out of the Lake Air Basin by um, the Olympic Dam uranium mine that was on Uncle Kevin's Arabana country. And that was a lot of what you had to do with him was anti-nuclear, anti-uranium activism. Can you tell us a bit about what Uncle Kev's resistance to the Olympic Dam mine looked like over the years? Well, it went longer. Coming up is our 25th anniversary of the Keepers of Lake Air Camp, Arabona Going Home Camp, and the shores of Lake Air South. That was the camp that he set up. Uh, for a number of years, we camped there. We closed the Ballfield Road, the Udnadatta Track. We blockaded it. Tourists couldn't get through. We were like actively uh, dismantling their infrastructure, shutting down their water bores occupying the mine site at Roxby Downs, which is one of the largest mines in the world, let alone uranium mines. Um, one day, just for example, myself, his long-term partner, Margaret, and Kevin just drove through the front gates and occupied the mine, and they shut the mine down, and the rest of the mob were out the front gates blockading it. So we did lots of direct action just directly on what was Western Mining Corporation at the time. It's now BHP. Um, just shutting down their water sources to stop them sucking that beautiful desert country dry. I mean, I can go on forever about the significance of water in that area, but, like, it's artesian water, artesian basin water. It's 2 million years old by the time it comes up in the desert there. It supplies all the water for every plant and animal in that region, in which this mine uses 52 million litres of water a day from that artesian basin. is killing. That was the campaign in a nutshell. It was an Aboriginal sovereignty campaign, first and foremost but it was we were water protectors and that's what we had to do yeah the mound springs there near lake air were a very significant place for arabana people and uh, for uncle kev as well in in doing resistance to the olympic dam mine yeah i mean that i can't i can't explain the significance of these mound springs but not just the mound springs like there's one which is snake's head spring which is a big mountain spring complex the most famous in the area but there's literally hundreds of other springs uh little springs that are just under rocks that for warriors to drink from and like uh, old woman's springs and like all of these springs are unique and they hold unique plants and animals that uh, and also supply the water for you know emus dingoes bonaras all everything all plants and animals. when that area floods all of these springs meet up in this orgy of life when lake and lake air floods and it all flows together, intermingles and replenishes the desert. As soon as you start losing those springs, you lose all of the life. Um, and that mine is taking away all of that precious life in the area. I mean, just in the years I lived there, I saw six springs stop flowing. So 
it's a very uh, devastating thing culturally for our amount of people and a devastating thing environmentally for the entire desert ecosystem. Now, as well as resisting the mine on his own country, Kev was for a long time president of ANFA, the for Nuclear Free Australia. Can you tell me a bit about his influence more broadly on anti-uranium, anti-nuclear movement in Australia? Um, it's not just in Australia, it's, it's globally. Like, he's a globally significant campaigner. But his influence within Australia... I think through ANTFA, which is a uh, organisation that is, as an anti-nuclear movement, is based in Aboriginal sovereignty. Like that's the basis of ANTFA. He was at the first ANTFA, and he was a real driving force behind it. Um, and you know, he's a radical campaigner, and he kept things radical, kept things fresh, and um, always pushed. He was always there pushing for the rights of his people at Lake Eyre and around those areas, but also just recognising that this is an international issue, not just about uranium and nuclear weapons and all that sort of stuff, but an international issue of displacement and dispossession of Indigenous peoples from this industry. And you mentioned um, there was a blockade camp and I think there were court cases as well against um, uh, the Olympic Dam mine, but one of the other... um, actions that he did a few times that he organised that you were a part of was these um, walks for peace, like long walks. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah. The first one was really uh, just leading up to the 2000 Olympics. He just, we would often uh, have a early morning meeting at Lake Air to see what we're going to do for the week or the day. And he just said, I think we're going to have to walk to the Sydney Olympics. We're like, right, let's make it happen. So we just put the call out. And I uh, started walking from Lake Eyre carrying a fire, a sacred fire, which is the same fire that burns at the embassy in Canberra, out across country, throughout through Wilcannia, all that country, across to Canberra to the Aboriginal tent embassy and up to Sydney. So we carried that fire. We kept it lit the whole way. It was carried in Coolamans by people walking. Um, and we eventually took out the uh, passenger seat in his car and built a fire in there on a bed of sand, and it was built fire billowing out the door but anyway we walked all that way through there to sydney and occupied kernel national park for a number of weeks had a big fire there and the whole thing was around finding the foot where the first white person set foot in this country it was and it was gonna trap that foot the energy of that foot captain cook's foot on uh, the shores of kernel and so we carried this fire all the way, collected water from all the lakes and rivers, kept it burning the whole way, built a big fire at Kernel National Park, occupied the park with permission from traditional owners. And every day we'd go down and build a fire right on the spot where Captain Cook landed. The water would come in and wash it away. We'd rebuild it. And that just happened for weeks and weeks on end. It was really significant. I don't explain it properly in such a short time, but it was a very significant uh, action and ceremony was so significant. We had hundreds of people there. Uh, during one of the meetings, we had a call from John Howard's office offering us $40,000 to move camp because it was such an embarrassment to the Australian government, which we told him to stick up their ass, basically. <laughs> Over the course of a weekend, we had a two-day ceremony that Kevin organised that was called Coming the Right Way and Coming the Wrong Way. Everyone, thousands of people came to be smoked in and walked in from the water. And it was like, it was teaching people how to be peaceful and how we should come the right way, even now, 
in this day and age. We still need to come the right way. We've never done that. And that's, I, I think that's what it was all about, teaching people to come the right way and building a fire in them to continue that struggle. After that, there was another walk to Japan or something like that, I understand. Yeah, I was one of the organisers for that walk, a few others. It was called the International Peace Pilgrimage. Tomorrow is the 25th anniversary of that walk. We set off on the 8th of December from the gates of Roxby Downs, uh, sung off by the Kupiti Kunga Judo, who were the senior women's counsellor from Kupiti who were fighting the nuclear waste dump, and Uncle Kevin, and we walked off from there uh, through to, to the Aboriginal Tenancy in Canberra via Melbourne and Adelaide. We flew to Japan. We walked from the north of Japan all the way down through all these nuclear facilities to Hiroshima and Nagasaki. It's Uncle Speedy McGuinness from the Northern Territory, whose lands include Rum Jungle Uranium Mine, one of Australia's worst environmental disasters, walked most of the way through Japan with us. But it was kind of important because that same fire that we carried to the Olympics, that same fire that Uncle Kevin built at the Aboriginal Ten Embassy, we carried that the entire way with us through Australia and through Japan and never let it go out. We also carried the Hiroshima Peace Flame, which was lit by a 15-year-old Japanese boy from the burning embers of the Hiroshima bomb and has never gone out itself as a big monument in the town where he was living. It was only the second time that he'd allowed that flame to leave Japan. So he carried these two flames across Australia, through Japan, met up with Kevin at the end in uh, Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And then we combined those flames with a big ceremony that Uncle Kevin and Uncle Speedy did on this hill overlooking uh, Nagasaki and this massive smoking ceremony up there and then buried those flames in the ground there. So it was a hugely important event in Japan and Australia. How did you get the embers of the Lake Air flame um, on the plane and everything to Japan? (laughs) Well, we carried them in these two hurricane lamps along the walk and we had these... uh, uh, kerosene pocket warmers they're kind of like giant big zippos right so they burn inside and they don't emit any uh flame so to speak they just burn away inside in the pocket warmers and we smuggled them on the plane <laughs> you wouldn't get away from it now we also sent those two flames we smuggled them onto a coal ship ironically out of newcastle a Japanese coal ship and the captain agreed to carry the flames back to Japan for us on a coal ship. <laughs> so once we got off the plane and got through customs in Japan, we had these like smuggled uh, pocket warmers. You just sort of blow into them with a straw and this flame reignites and we were able to keep the fire going that way. But we had a backup plan and that was the two flames on the coal ship, which we picked up in Tokyo. <laughs> I feel- we did not get away for today. <laughs> I feel like that that story is really great, though, in illustrating Uncle Kev, that in one way there's just this ridiculous grand vision of this walk through the desert and across the ocean and whatever with this flame that he somehow managed to convince all these people to do, you know, these really grand plans. But also there's this real... um, belief in the value of, of symbols and ritual and I guess the... The Olympic one is comparing it to the Olympic torch or something, this sort of symbol that's kind of pointless but people make a big deal of. But Uncle Kev always had these things about symbols and the importance of them, didn't he? Yes. 
He did ceremony all the time and included people in that ceremony. It was an integral part of campaigning. Even when we were blockading uranium mines and stuff, we always had that fire with us. It was always a fire with us, a symbol, and it's a part of theatre. You know, he would always say, you've got to have that theatre. You've got to bring people along with the theatre. I'm not I'm not being flippant in saying this, like, but the fire was as much theatre as anything else, but importantly, it was a very serious ceremony. And it would always accompany him. And, like, he built that fire in everyone. He built it in me. He built it on so many thousands of people. He trained us with that fire. And that's the thing that burns inside us to keep us going and that we need to nurture, especially now. But, look, look, let's just talk about something else. The day that he took the kangaroo and emu, the coat of arms, off at Parliament House. Peak theatre, right? He calls me and Euroka Gilbert over in the morning. Euroka's the son of Kevin Gilbert, the very famous Aboriginal activist. He said, I need a stepladder and a craver. I knew what he was going to do because we'd been talking about it for months. His old people had told him to do this for 30 years, 30 years ago, but that was the right time to do it. He just woke up and this is the moment to do it. Walks over, crowbars off the coat of arms, crowbars off another coat of arms. Pretty soon we're surrounded by cops the, old parliament house is surrounded by riot cops and he's just in the moment walking up and down with his, his stick and the ladder laying down a lot of these riot cops just went on for days and days this theater around this action was so grand and so uh, important we're having like the head of Qantas at the time ringing up offering money so that we wouldn't like take our intellectual property right acts act out against Qantas for using the kangaroo as their symbol. But for him, it was a very serious thing. These animals are not just symbols. They're his relatives. Now, to have those kangaroo and emu up on the coat of arms is insulting, to say the least. Now, it was a very serious thing for him to do that. And he, I said he'd waited like 30 years to do that, um, to bring those family members back. And, you know, the government's never gotten those coat of arms back, let's I don't know where they are, but they're never getting them back. So he was rescuing his family members and taking that power away from the Commonwealth uh, in doing so, but also using his grand theatrics to do it and creating this like immu immutable story. It was quite an amazing experience to be a part of. Mm. Um, Uncle Kev has passed on now, going to be with his ancestors. What legacy do you think that he leaves? Sure. I mean, that's unquantifiable, I guess. Like, he is a huge figure in Aboriginal activism in Australia, in sovereignty campaigning, in land rights campaigning. He's a huge figure internationally uh, as a peace activist, as a, a also a, you know, Indigenous sovereignty activist globally, and personally for many of us, his family. So... I don't know. All I know is he built a fire in me. He raised up generations of um, sovereignty campaigners. He uh, took on kings and queens of England and Commonwealth governments and mining companies. And I hope he's never forgotten. You're on the Paradigm Shift on 4ZZZ, that is Bilbo Taylor there, talking about his experiences with the late, great Kevin Buzzacott. Um, somebody else who spent a, a lot of time um, organising crazy uh, adventures with Uncle Kev 
was Izzy Brown of um, hip-hop group Combat Wombat, who as well as doing all kinds of activist escapades with Uncle Kev, also got to see another side of him in organising gigs and parties with him. Let's have a listen to Izzy. Hi, I'm Izzy Brown from Combat Wombat. And today we're doing a bit of a memorial for Kevin Buzzacott. You spent a lot of time working with him, but can you start off telling us how you first met him and got involved doing stuff with him? I first met Uncle Kevin at the Aboriginal Tenant Embassy when I was just a wee teenager um, on the lawns of the um, old Parliament House in Canberra. I remember we were playing a game of invisible cricket and I think I was like bowling invisible um, cricket balls. <laughs> I think he was hitting them. I can't remember exactly. But um, it was there that I first learned about you know his struggle for his country, Arabana country, against the mining company at that time was Western Mining Corporation. Um, yeah, witnessed Uncle Kev's you know staunchness against the state and creative ways to go about um, that kind of resistance at the embassy. Now. Izzy, I'm interested in asking you about this because as well as being a staunch activist, Uncle Kev also loved to party and I believe that one of Australia's most epic doofs ever took place on his Arabana country. So could you tell us about how these two worlds combined? So Uncle Kevin is also a member of our band, Combat Wombat. He often jumped up on stage to do cameo appearances with Combat Wombat. His MC name was Buzz Wapper. There's many a party and many a gig that, um, yeah, he blessed the microphone, but also around the campfire as the music plays, he was, you know, often the last one <laughs> still standing or, or sitting <laughs> as, as the sun came up. So we had some big events up on Arabana Country. Burnout was one up at Aubrey Creek Station that happened for, for many years. It involved building a big giant fire sculpture that Christian made and different sound system crews would come up and um, have wild parties up there and the life of the party was certainly Mr Uncle Kevin Buzzacott. <laughs> we also had the Earth Dream Convoy in 2000 which involved crews from Europe and America and the UK bringing their sound systems over and bringing them out to Arabana country up at Lake Eyre where we also had massive parties and that was the thing about Uncle Kev he was just wanted to see people coming together and enjoying themselves and he certainly enjoyed himself too with the occasional rendition of <clears throat> a bit of Credence Clearwater in between the techno and the hip-hop. <laughs> yeah, I think that's one of the notable things about him too is that he loved that kind of feral activist subculture and was a kind of a link for many people in that scene to, you know, Aboriginal activism and the anti-nuclear movement. Absolutely. I think it was, you know, his big open heart that accepted, yeah, he, he didn't care if you were, you know, a punk or a feral or a hippie or whatever it was. His heart was open and welcoming to you know, anyone that was, you know, prepared to care for the land and look after the land. And he created 
like spaces that were so welcoming and so kind of educational, I guess, for people um, of all walks of life. I guess it made us feel like family, which is something that doesn't happen every day and really special. Yeah, all the, all the forest ferals had their their time in the deserts that really kind of educated all of us on, um, I guess, land justice and um, yeah, truth to power. Yeah, I think that's an important thing to highlight too. I went out to Uncle Kev's country a couple of times at events that you helped organise, like the Lizard's Revenge. And being there in the desert, it takes that kind of uranium mining from this theoretical thing to this really tangible thing of this fragile country. Is that something that was important to Uncle Kev, getting people on country? It sure is. For him bringing people back to the land and helping people experience that connection to land um, enabled people to know what they were fighting for, to know, to have that connection with the country. You you want to stand up for it. You want to protect it. And, you know, by making people feel welcome there and inviting them there and having that connection with that place, you know, it creates like a whole, I guess, a whole movement almost that will then, you know, stand up for country in the future. And I think that was definitely part of his vision. Now, another big uh, project that you were involved in with Uncle Kev was the flotilla to West Papua, which is a long way from the desert, but I understand that Uncle Kev was very keen on bringing together these two indigenous cultures that are fighting against extractive colonialism. Yeah, um, the Freedom Flotilla was born actually at a squat in Carlton where Uncle Kev was kind of camping out the back in a little shed and it was there he connected with uh, Jacob Rombiak and some of the West Papuans um, that were in contact with the 43 uh, West Papuan refugees that were coming by canoe to Australia. And, you know, sharing those stories and that struggle and also connecting on a spiritual level um, over the song lines and cultural connections that Papuans have um, with the mob here and the water from the from the lake and from the mound springs that travels down, you know, all the way from Papua. All those things um, really inspired Uncle Kev and moved him to to take to take action and I remember him saying to me, Izzy, find me a boat. I need a boat. I need a fleet of boats. We're going to West Papua to help our brothers and sisters over there. And I was like, yeah, sure. (laughs) Not that I knew anything about boats or how to get one. (laughs) But he enlisted me with the quest and, you know, I'm fairly determined. (laughs) So we put that into action and we just sued the police uh, for pepper spraying and beating us at Beverly Uranium Mine and we used that money to buy a yacht uh, for the flotilla and we started the journey up uh, on Arabana country where we collected the sacred water from the Mound Springs um, to take with us uh, to give to the West Papuan uh, rebel leaders uh, on our arrival. So that was quite an epic journey of <laughs> with many logistics and many, many people and uh, yeah, left cans with a couple of boats and 
I think for Uncle Kev being on the water, he, he did look a bit green. The desert man on the sea was a little bit challenging. So we did end up, like, taking a few other different means of transport. But, yeah, that connection was formed under a secret meeting just off the coast of Papua in two tinnies where we managed to do the exchange with Aboriginal passports and the water, sacred water and ashes from the tent embassy fire. Yeah, it was a truly epic adventure and one, you know, memories that will stay with me for life, that's for sure. And it's those that kind of visionary kind of idea and, you know, calling the bluff on, on you know, jurisdiction, like, and, and border controls and all those things that, you know, really made, I guess, working with him really exciting and special because we really did push all those, like, ideas of boundaries that often don't get get pushed in that way. Yeah, it's a great story. And I think even then, Uncle Kev was an old man, but he was still up for this epic journey. But also, I think it shows that he was like an ideas man and he had this ability to convince people like yourself to um, to put these grand visions into practice. <laughs> yeah, I think that's the thing, you know, both... Both of us can see the good in people. You know, it doesn't matter, you know, your background or you know what's happened. Like everyone has potential to do, to do good stuff. And sometimes you just need a mission. You know, sometimes you just need a, a vision or some place to put that energy that you've got. And you know, amazing things can happen. Well, he certainly lived a very full life. Um, what legacy do you think Uncle Kev leave? Uncle Kevin has left a massive legacy that involves standing up and fighting for country and opening the doors and accepting people for who they are and using that energy and those ideas to, you know, question, you know, the powers that be, you know, the call of no jurisdiction, uh, thinking outside the box, not being scared of authority and actually just disregarding it in a way to do what you have to do. You know, certainly things that, you know, I've learnt from him and many, many others have. And I think he touched so many people and inspired so many people that, yeah, the legacy that he's left behind is, is, a, is a huge one. And everybody I've spoken to really wants to continue to take action on those things like uranium mining and, and land rights and water theft and yeah I think his his visions and dreams will continue continue on. He's definitely for me a big and massive inspiration in my life and shaped my life to be what it is and I certainly don't regret any of the wild adventures and epic <laughs> logistical palavas that <laughs> we went on, even though some of them weren't easy. But, yeah, love his style. Revolutionary, but gangster, with the biggest heart in the world. That is Izzy Brown there on the Paradigm Shift, talking about her experiences causing mischief with Uncle Kev, whether on the dance floor or uh, blockading uranium mines or sailing to West Papua. He certainly managed to keep her busy. 
Now, Uncle Kev, we have heard earlier in the show from Robbie Thorpe that he was a lawman in the traditional Aboriginal sense of understanding culture and sharing it with people. But he was also a bit of a, a lawman in the Western sense in that he spent a lot of time in court with different court cases. Some of them were him taking uh, the government or mining companies to court. And sometimes it was the other way around, such as the uh, notable moment when he reclaimed the coat of arms off the old parliament house um to get a picture of this side of uncle kev i thought i would speak to his lawyer len linden um and so this is what len has to say hi uh my name is len linden i live in melbourne in australia and um, i used to be a, a a barrister human rights barrister and um that's how i met the great kevin buzzacott yeah, we are talking about Kevin Buzzacott today, and um, we'll talk about your involvement with him in a, a legal capacity. Um, but yeah, do you want to start off with we're just saying how you first um, came into contact with him and worked with him? Yeah, well, in about 1997, I think, or, or eight, um, Robbie Thorpe and Billy Craigie and Isabel Coe and uh, Wajula Binna Nalyarima decided to take John Howard to court. They tried to charge him with genocide in the, and uh, a bunch of people joined in. It was all coming from the Aboriginal Tent Embassy. And uh, anyhow, it went to the ACT Supreme Court and um, you had the Supreme Court judge sitting there and there were about 20 Aboriginal people sitting at the bar tables and they were all appearing for themselves. Like the whole point of it was that rather than having white lawyers, we had the Aboriginal people themselves were speaking directly to the court and giving evidence about genocide, which made it a bit hard for the court to sort of dismiss it. Anyhow, Kevin was, uh, I think I met him at the fire at the Tent Embassy first. I mean, he was a master of performance art, that guy, and he, he, he was just a fantastic performer. He was also like, a, you know, a great lawman and, um, and a fantastically funny person, you know, great country and western singer <laughs> a lot of different personalities wrapped up in kevin buzzacott yeah and you went on to have more involvement with him in um one of the actions which um he should go down in history for although i'm not sure it's as well known as it should be but when he he took the um the coat of arms off the old parliament house what happened is uh, allegedly he removed a, a coat of arms from, from in front of Old Parliament House and the coat of arms had the kangaroo and the emu on it. And he said that uh, no one had the right to use those totems of the kangaroo and emu apart from, you know, people who are authorised under, um, you know, what you might call Aboriginal law. So, so he was prosecuted by the ACT police for theft of a coat of arms. Uh, which they never found <laughs> so, so so there was never any sort of direct proof that he had taken it but um what what happened was the the, the case just dragged on for ages because every time it came up uh, you know we had a different pre-trial motion it went to the supreme court about you know the the fact that uh the the ACT had no jurisdiction over Aboriginal people and that uh, the judge was biased because he was complicit in committing genocide by, you know, asserting jurisdiction over Aboriginal people. So this sort of dragged on for about 18 months before it finally got to court. And, uh, <laughs> and 
So they started calling witnesses and they, you know, they called the policeman at the time. And of course, we asked the policeman, you know, where he got his jurisdiction from. And he had no idea, really. The, the, the judge turned out to be the same judge that, that had heard this um, uh, case about John Howard and the 10 point plan. And, the, um, and so he was very sympathetic uh, and uh, he'd actually come down to the tent embassy on a view in the previous case. So when the jury finally of course, retired for their verdict and came back and convicted Kevin of theft. You know, he the, the judge said, oh, well, we'll just, th there's no penalty involved. You've already spent a lot of time arguing this case, so we'll just put you on a good behaviour bond or something like that. So this huge, like, trial that went for days and, and it dragged on for years, really, was just all about, you know, a good behaviour bond when it came down to it. Also, we subpoenaed all these different um, politicians and also the embassies because anyhow I mean it's really hard to capture just talking about it what it was like being in a courtroom with Kevin because he had such authority I mean when he spoke to the judges it's just phenomenal I mean he just had incredible power of um, his personality that you just had to listen to what he was saying and in fact we did another case in South Australia where we charged uh, the head of the mining company and with genocide in relation to Lake Eyre and the mining of Lake Eyre and Western Mining Corporation. And so he, <laughs> he was once again in court talking directly to the judge. Fantastic. But I think, I mean, we, we asked him in the most recent case a couple of months ago if he wanted to come in on it. And he said he just had no confidence at all in the courts. Just he thought they would they would just never, even if they pretended to listen, they would never give justice. You know, and that's certainly true in Australia. Well, um, what legacy do you think Kevin Buzzacott leaves? Yeah, well, first of all, Kevin hasn't died. I mean, he just lives on in anyone that knew him, and um, and I think his, his his reputation will just grow and grow and grow as the years go past. But there are so many people, um, white people and Aboriginal people that knew him and met him that have been affected by, uh, by, by, by knowing him and his, just his strength and his commitment and his fantastic humour and his lightness of spirit. Anyone that was fortunate enough to, to come into contact with that man was, uh, was pretty lucky and I'm sure it will live on in the, their spirit forever. That is Len Linden there giving one last tribute to Uncle Kevin Buzzacott. And I could have played more. A lot of people had their lives impacted one way or another by Uncle Kev. And it's been a great honor actually collecting some of these stories to share with the world and hopefully uh, document them for the future as well. I couldn't believe um, the lack of coverage of Uncle Kev's death last week. Um, in the mainstream media for somebody who has had such an impact on the world. But ultimately, um, death in any way is a great uh, reflection tool on our own mortality. And it's a reminder that the best impact you can have is not always being the most famous person or the richest or the most successful by some arbitrary measure. But actually your life will live on in the people that you impacted um, both those around you and those who get to live in the world that you help create and Uncle Kev will certainly live on in both those ways so RIP to Uncle Kev we'll miss you here in this country in the world of activism 
but we're better off for you having been around for your 77 years. And that's all for another episode of The Paradigm Shift. I'll see you next week.